Well, let's go to John chapter 1, and we're just going to work through this as a way to, to set up our study on Christian science tonight. Uh, just as a rule of thumb, John chapter 1, the first 14, 15 verses or so, that's an excellent place to start and to bring people to who are involved in cults. All right, and just kind of as a little survey, how many of you have heard of Christian science before? Okay, all right. And just, just to uh, clarify, it's not creation science, right? It's not like Sue actually is a Christian scientist, science teacher, right? Oh, yeah, boom. So we're, we're not talking about the study of science. We're talking about a very particular, very weird, very twilight zone-ish group. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go straight to the truth. We're going to go to the real currency. We're going to work through that for a few minutes, and then we're going to compare that to the version that a lot of people um, in Hollywood often find themselves appealed to. Have you ever noticed that some of the things that, that normal people say, that's crazy, it seems like Hollywood says, that's awesome. Yeah. All right? What's that? Leah Remy, she's an actress. She quit Christian Science, and now her family won't even talk to her. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, it's, it's a very, very interesting world, and we'll try to take the 46 minutes or so that we have and, and knock it out of the park. So let's go to John 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, In the beginning the Word was the Word. I don't want to do a Jehovah's Witnesses slip there, right? Let me read that again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So according to John chapter 1 and verse 3, are there like co-creators are there extra creators in the universe somewhere? No. That everything that has been made, in other words, this is a first century way of saying everything that exists. That's very cool, especially with the science stuff. It's saying that everything within the realm of what is real and what actually exists comes through Him. It comes from Christ. Verse 4, in Him was life. This is a great verse to memorize. This is a great one to to put on the dash of the, the car. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So let's reverse that, kind of like with film, and let's say, okay, if Jesus is the life, and if through Him and the life that He gives, if that's what gives light to humanity, then what situation do you find humanity in if Jesus is removed? Darkness. That means we don't we don't know our right hand from our left. It means that we can you know make rationalizations for things that we really know that are wrong. So Christ is the one who gives light. In other words, he explains what is. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? Because darkness can't fight Light. Darkness is the absence of light. That means that when we follow Christ and when we try to, through His power, be a witness for Him in whatever situation in life that we are, it means that we have Christ in 1 John chapter 5, that He has overcome the world, right? 
And that if we are following him, allowing him to use us, it means that there's nothing that we can come against that we cannot overcome through him. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. It's kind of cool, right? He's a witness. They're like, are you a witness? He's like, I'm a witness bearing witness. It's kind of like a tongue twister, all right? But not really. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So according to verse 7, to whom does the gospel open its doors to? Jesus. All who would believe, but how do you believe? Only through Christ. Only through Jesus. Okay, So it's almost like you have this universal offer, but it's only received through one person. Now let's just stop right here and do a little apologetics. What happens when you talk to people about your faith in Christ and they say that you saying that Jesus is the Savior is intolerant? Like you're being narrow-minded when you, when you advocate salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Because the one thing you don't want to do in today's society is be under, understood as somebody who's like, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Like that's the one thing that doesn't fly. But how, how, what, what, what may be some ways that we can respond to this when we say that salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone? And people say, what about all the others? What do you think? That's not a claim you're making. That's a claim that Jesus himself made. Boom. And he rose from the dead to validate his claim. If anybody else doesn't have it. Yes. Good. So... It goes back to basically what you're saying, Lee, is like Francis Chan when people would get upset. What's that? He said, has anyone else been dead? He said, yes. Oh, yeah. No, nobody else has risen from the dead unless we're talking zombies, but that's a whole other deal that's, you know, not not real. Um, But Francis Chan, when people would sit, would get upset with him, you know, great pastor out in California about being very, very vocal about what Jesus has said. And they'll say, well, Francis said that, you know, and Francis said that he's like, guys, I didn't say that. You know, Jesus said that. So that's one thing that John MacArthur always does in interviews when people try to to really press him on being intolerant and, you know, being just closed-minded to other viewpoints. He's saying, look, this is not John's viewpoint. This is what Jesus has said. And then we can appeal, go back to all the things that we've learned in this series, to evidence and say, you know, let's just imagine for a moment that that you say there may be many paths to God. Let's just, let me let me hand that to you for a second. Well, Muhammad's still dead, right? Buddha's still dead. All of these religious figures are still dead. But yet the evidence says that unless you're biased, right? Unless you want to believe what the evidence doesn't say, it leads you to the belief that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then that changes everything, right? Jesus is no longer a moral teacher. He never claimed to be that, right? But he's more than that. He's God in the flesh because only God can overcome the power of death. That's more than human. So he was, verse 8, not the light, referring to John, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is something I think that's very important for me as a pastor and as a Christian and all of us to understand. When people reject Christ and it's the Christ that you have shared with them, 
It's the church event that you've invited them to where Jesus is going to be lifted up. Sometimes it can hurt, right, when they reject it. Who ultimately are they rejecting? Right. Here's something for us to think about. If John the Baptist, I mean, Jesus says there is no greater man born among women than John the Baptist. He was the man. He had so much courage and so much like true love and passion. But yet if John came to simply say, look, I'm not here all about John. I'm here to just simply be a witness to him. I'm going to be a mirror and point to Jesus. Then how much more should we come to witnessing to people, praying for people, saying, you know what? If they reject my invitations, yes, that hurts. But ultimately, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so we're more broken over them rejecting him than they are rejecting us. Verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Wow. You know, Romans 1 says that you can look at the creation, like to the, 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 all of the design that you find in nature, and you can, you can imply from that that there's a creator. Romans 2 says that even if people don't have the word of God, if they don't have the law, they have the law written on their conscience. Like with any nursery, and especially, that'd be really weird if a church taught this. Especially when y'all work back there. We don't teach kids a class on how to disobey, right? We don't do that. We don't teach them a class like, okay, we want to make sure you're fully rounded humans. Here's how to tell a lie to your teacher at school. We just don't do that. It, It comes natural. And not only does sinning come natural, it seems like we just do. Like the Joker on Batman, I just do, right? But But we know that what we do is We've got that weight of the conscience. We're going back to this, that the world was made through him, but yet the world, according to the first few verses, was in light or darkness? Darkness. Because they had rejected the light of God, then when Christ came in the world, they had no understanding of what God was like because they had rejected what he had given them. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, this is good, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So according to that last verse there in verse 13, how does a person get saved? Who does the saving? God. Now, when it says... Uh, not of blood, it means that it doesn't matter if a person comes from a religious background or a non-religious background. It means by the will of the flesh, it means that salvation doesn't happen. This is very helpful when we talk to people in the South. Because what do most people in the South, this next phrase, nor of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, when you talk about life change and salvation and being born again and being transformed by God, What do most people associate that with? Being good. And if you're talking to a person who's honest and they know that they have not, quote, been good, then they'll say, I need to start, what? Being good. And they could, what was that, Fred? Start being good. 
Okay. Okay, you were laughing. I thought you had a zinger that I didn't notice, and I wanted to extract all the meaning from that. So, yeah, and then they associate it by, by willing and desiring to do better. They, they associate salvation with the flesh and human effort. And the Bible says, you are not born of the flesh or of your own will, but it's the supernatural changing power of God himself. That's the change. But then, Jeff goes to college in Clearwater, Florida, which is the head, the headquarters of Christian science. And it is the, I mean, it is the Mecca. There are, it's this huge establishment there. There are Christian science people everywhere. And what we just studied here, which is basic Bible 101, when you talk to people like that, they don't understand salvation in the same way. We're going to, Look at what they understand, and then we'll, we'll go back to um, John 1. I'll give you verse 14, and we'll jump into it. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here you have God Himself who comes, and He is among us. You're around people that you just don't feel that you connect with. No. It's like, I just don't feel that I have any anything, we hear this all the time, don't we? I don't have anything in common, right? I don't have anything in common with these people or with this person. We all understand that we connect with certain people better than other people, right? We all have best friends and people that we really enjoy that, that they seem to give energy to us instead of make us feel like we can't even drive home because it was so draining, right? Like those people, uh, my brother says at his church, they, they call them, I see, EGRs, extra grace required. <laughs> do, do you know any EGRs where you just around and they just suck the life out of you? And you're just like, oh, Lord, help me, you know. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> but but this, this strikes me very interesting when it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. You talk about not having anything in common. I mean, yes, Jesus was 100% human. Yes, Jesus felt hunger and pain and what it meant to be betrayed, the emotional scarring that results there. But I mean, you're talking about God who comes in human flesh to be one of us, to dwell and live among us and breathe and sleep and everything that the human condition has. So this right here is a challenge to me that if I find people or a person that I may not have a lot that I think in common with, what did Jesus do? He went to those and he became like them. doesn't mean that we change who we are, but the Apostle Paul says, I have become all things that I may reach some people, right? That I may reach all people. So here's a statement. Now that we're going to get in front, all right, so this is going to be like a seismic shift here from the awesome world of John 1 to the weird world of Christian science. And uh, James Beverly in the book, Nelson's Illustrated Guide to Religion, says, quote, Christian science is one of the few religions in the world that contains a core teaching that is often deadly when put into practice. What in the world does that mean? Well, in Christian science, uh, we'll break that down in just a few minutes, but how many of you have ever seen a Christian science reading room anywhere? Okay, there's not too many in Rocky Mount. Last time I checked, uh, I didn't do my Google homework and see if there's any in Roanoke. 
But I've been, especially in Clearwater, you, you walk by and, and there's this Christian science reading room. Now, most normal people are definitely like, I'm going to go grab a Starbucks. Oh, that's enticing. That's engaging to me. Not really, right? It's Christian, it's science, and it's a reading, and it's a room. So for most people, not searching for God, all those things are are big no-nos. But why would you have a Christian science reading room? Glad you asked. All right. So here's, uh, and this comes from uh, J. Warner Wallace. He gives these three worldview questions that I think are really good that we can assess this by. Number one, a question for your worldview or religion or philosophy is number one, how did we get here? Number two, what happened? Why did things get so messed up? And number three, how can it be fixed? Uh, this lady here, name is uh, her name is Mary Baker Eddy. And when I f- was looking at these pictures, I said, boy, she looks like something out of a horror film. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, but... Seriously? Okay, glad it's not me. Like, imagine, I have a warped sense of humor. What's that? Evil? All right, imagine, imagine you walk in your house at night and you turn on the light and she's standing there like that. I'd have a Pentecostal experience, you know. The, the lamp is going in that direction. I don't care if she is a woman. So... Um, but just ask God to remove that from your mind and you go to sleep tonight. Uh, she was born in Bow, New Hampshire on July 16th, 1821. And here we come back to the thing that we see over and over again, and it's this. Most people don't believe what they believe because of quote-unquote rational, scientific, analytical, intellectual reasons Most people believe what they believe because of an experience, especially a hurtful emotional one. Okay? So Mary Baker Eddy, imagine she was often ill as a child and she would search the Bible, even at that age, for verses on physical healing. Why? Because she was often ill. And then she was put in contact with, um, I guess we could call him a quack. There's one source that says he was a mesmerist and a magnetic healer. His name was Phineas Quimby, and he taught that, quote, disease, physical disease, now get this, was simply the result of faulty thinking. Now let's stop right there and break down that statement we saw just a few moments ago. That there are very few cults or religions that if you follow the teaching outside of violence and so forth, it could have deadly consequences. For example, if you're convinced that Christian science is the truth, and you are diagnosed with a treatable form of cancer, but you believe that the cancer that as we'll see, that the universe truly doesn't exist, that it's an illusion, and the way that you fix it is you adopt correct thinking. The result could be deadly. Because they deny that this actually um, is in existence, everything that we see. A few more facts. Uh, In 1866, she fell at 45 years old, and she injured her spine. She had a quick recovery, and she attributed that healing to her philosophy of mind and the Bible. And then she wrote a book called Health, or excuse me, Science and Health, or Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures, and she used it as a foundation for this brand new cult sect religion. Alright? 
So this is what she taught. Okay, number one, God is an impersonable, impersonal principle or an idea. Now, what does the Bible tell us about who God is? Is God just an idea or what? He's a person, right? God is personal. He's he's a spirit. Okay, but in, in this, he's not. Uh, there's a denial of the Trinity. They would say that Jesus is divine and not God. This comes from uh, her book, Science and Health. Quote, Jesus is the name of the man who, more than all other men, has presented, has presented Christ, the true idea of God, healing the sick and sinning and destroying the power of death. So in other words, Jesus was just really good at following God. What other group does this remind us of? Or groups, should I say? Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Uh, Mormons, and most of your cults that says Jesus is a good guy, but he's not the Savior. And that's what sets apart the Bible from um, false, false religions. These are just a few, few points here about their teaching. We're not going to go through all of these, um, but most of them involve a denial of what we understand the Bible to teach. Basic things, um, you know, such as number 10 here, Jesus was not the Christ. They clearly teach that Jesus was not the Messiah, not the Son of God. Um, this goes on and on and on. Number 17 is very interesting because they teach that evil and good are not real. Interesting, right? Like evil and good are not real. Must live on another planet. <laughs> Do you hear the two hundred? I think it's two hundred thousand people have signed a petition to live on Mars. Did you read that or see that on the news? And I'm just like, man, that's. Here's the thing: if we make it to Mars, I, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. That would be really cool, like in a, in a scientific way. But if you put people there, humans, there's going to be sin. There's going to be evil. There's going to be theft because you can transplant. It's kind of like the old adage that we heard. You can take the man out of the mountains, but you can't take the mountains out of the man, right? Like the, the deep woods guy. You can take the person out of planet Earth and you can put them on a spaceship, but you can't take the sin out of the person. Only Jesus can do that. And so, number 21 here, true healings. This would be just one example. True healings are the result of true belief. Does it make sense now why they have Christian science reading rooms? Because how do you come to a true belief or correct belief? You read. What do you read? Primarily you read the Bible, but you also have to have Mary Baker Eddy's book to actually interpret the Bible correctly. Now let's stop right there. What may be some responses or red flags, sirens that should go off if someone comes to us and they say, we believe the Bible... But here is our guide, and only through our guide can you understand and interpret the Bible correctly. One person calling all the shots. You know, all, all the false religions have that. Mm-hmm. Just one leader or two leaders. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to go through it. Right. The Bible says not to add all the things we need to take from the Bible. But we don't need nothing else. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the only one and true source. Mm-hmm. That, that is the final authority. Now, good Bible study books can help. Okay? They can help. But if they clearly contradict the Bible, we throw them out. But even with the good ones, we say this is a help, but it's not the source. Like, we don't follow John Piper or Johnny Hunt or, you know, any, any, any leader. Uh, we follow Jesus. 
So the, the second question about what happened, like why do we find the world in the condition that we find it in, they teach that wrong thinking is the cause, which the wrong thinking is this, not realizing that matter is not real. And the matter, we know, you know, Sue, going back to science class, matter is all of the stuff, anything physical, any, you know, even air itself is matter. So according to Christian science, everything that we see, hear, taste, touch, feel is not what? It's not real. So it's an illusion. So in order for you to get better, they teach that you have to realize and accept that everything that you know is not real. All that we see is an illusion. So here's, here's some questions. Number one, if the world is an illusion, then what effect does that have on the Christian faith as we know it? What do you think? Like, if they're right, then what effect does that have upon what the Bible clearly teaches? Did Jesus really die on the cross? Yeah. It's null and void. Did God really create the world? Yes. We we know. Yeah, I like Tommy. Tommy's like, drop the hammer. Yes. (laughs) Right? But they, they say not. So here's the thing. Sin, death, disease, forgiveness, feeding the hungry, everything that we know the Bible teaches, they teach is actually an illusion. It's not real. Another question. If science, if Christian science is correct, then where does quote-unquote salvation come from? It no longer comes from Jesus, okay? Repentance and faith in Him, but it basically comes through your own thinking that comes from you just realizing that all of this doesn't truly exist. It's kind of like a Christian nirvana. So this goes back to something we've seen time and time again. In Christian science, whose job is it to save whom? Absolutely. And we see that within Islam. It's your job to do as much as you can to get Allah. We see that within Buddhism, that you have to meditate enough to reach nirvana. We see that in Hinduism, to where you have to work off karma. We see that within Jehovah's Witnesses, to where they say we believe in grace, but grace is actually the opportunity for you to work for your salvation as opposed to you receiving your salvation. We see it time and time again. And that's why I hope we're all encouraged that we don't have to go get multiple degrees in apologetics. We don't have to know Christian philosophy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, although we, we should try to learn as much as we possibly can, that the biblical doctrine of grace through faith, that means that I can't do anything to deserve God's grace, but He gave it to me when I didn't deserve it, when I could never earn it. That smacks with all of these false, these false philosophies and religions. So the Bible, she taught that the Bible had errors and can only be understood properly when using her science and health as a guide. See, that's where we need to say time out, right? It's God's word alone. With our discussion on Roman Catholicism, it was sola scriptura, only scripture. Not what other people say about it, but only scripture is the authority. Also denied Genesis 1 and 2, because I left this blank up here on purpose, because God creates man from the what? The dust of the earth. Now, we know from science class that dust is matter. It's stuff, right? This is stuff. We're stuff. But yet, if the material world is not real, 
then you have to deny Genesis 1 and 2, which says that God used stuff that he created to create the physical part of uh, what it means to be human. So the question, this could go very broad, you can just shotgun it. How should we respond to these, these types of claims? If somebody has just unloaded that on you and said, here is the truth, what may be some responses? Right, right. Yeah, it, it kind of self-destructs, doesn't it? It just breaks down on, on its own. Christian science reading rooms and illusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, and see, I really, we're, we're going to look at, I think, about five questions if we, if we get to it. But a lot of this, when people, the wider culture and things like this are growing... Okay, we know with, with millennials, those born between, I think they said 1980 and 2000, um, the generation before, 20%, um, you know, would say that I am evangelical and they're actively involved in a church. And the number drops with millennials to 15%. Now, there are some other things that I think are good. It's becoming more real, more Jesus-centered, less churchianity, so forth, but... Things like this seem to, to grow. The weirdness, the weirdness is wafting. All right. It just, it just grows. So a lot of our response and, and that we know the truth, I think it has to be a response that's done in grace and truth. Because for some of us, we just want to be like, that was awesome. Well, you're crazy. Okay. You know, be like, that was awesome. No, seriously, what do you believe? You know, like you, that was, that was really sci-fi-ish, but people really believe this. We have to remember what scripture says that they are blind. And if a blind person comes in here and they trip over a chair and they run into us and they step on our toe, we don't get angry at the blind person because they're blind, right? We lead them lovingly and gently to Christ. And we have to resist sometimes the temptation, if we have studied this stuff, to just unload all the reasons why we know that we're right and they're wrong. We have to just follow the Holy Spirit. Because if y'all ever been tempted to do that, kind of put your 12-gauge gun of truth in love, right? And just be like, you know, take down your shield of faith and just unload. And that usually doesn't, um, doesn't make disciples. It, it leaves bodies. They also believe that heaven and hell are simply states of mind. Her book, Science and Health, says, quote, Harmony, the reign of spirit, government, by the divine principle, spirituality, bliss, the atmosphere of soul. It's just that it, it doesn't exist. Same thing with salvation. Um, so here are a few tough questions. I adapted these from J. Warner Wallace, great, great Christian author. So here's a question. If the material world is not to be trusted then how can we trust the Bible and her book, Science and Health, if they exist in this material world? Think about that. Whether you're reading it, if nothing exists, then what is the paper matrix stuff, you know, that it's written on? Matrix, right? Yeah. Um, And not only that, if someone's communicating to you verbally that these things are true, well, we're hearing that we're understanding that in what? An illusion? So, it kind of what you are referencing earlier, it very quickly breaks down. Second question. If our bodily existence... Now, check this out. This, this gets really, really wacky. If our bodily existence is unreal, how can we trust 
any eyewitness account of the bodily form of Jesus. You're like, wait now, they deny the Bible? No, they claim to accept the Bible as long as it's translated through their, you know, their prism and their, their way of interpretation. But still, they believe that Jesus existed, that he was a good guy, that he was deity, but he wasn't totally God. But if Jesus' physical, who he was, is an illusion, then you see, it breaks down very, very fast. Another question. And this is, and once you go past a couple of these questions, it almost, it almost feels like you're picking on the kid that's already been beaten down, but these are questions that I think would be good to put in our, our quiver. Our senses are part of the material world, right? Taste, touch, sound, all, all that stuff, the sixth sense, okay, all those things. So how can we trust them to know if we are really healed in the first place? Because what actually what, what actually pushed her, Mary Baker Eddy, to this position to begin with? What's that? Right, right. Yeah, she had all these physical maladies and these sicknesses, illnesses, and then she had this quick recovery. She attributed this healing, but but how do we how do we how do we know if we've been been healed? Right, if this is an illusion. Another question. If biblical historical narratives are not to be trusted because material history is an illusion, then how are we to trust that Jesus lived within history as recorded in the Bible? You see, when you try to establish something on the foundation of an illusion, okay? Like, like imagine if somebody is out there, and just this is one of those kind of absurd illustrations, and it's a new housing development that's going up. And you've got all of these houses being made, and what's usually the first thing you do if you're building a house? Foundation. foundation. These houses have a foundation. These up the street have a foundation. But then you see this guy, and, and he's trying to just put a frame upon the ground. And, and you say, well, 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 what are you doing? And he says, well, you know, there, there is real, really no foundation. You say, well, why are you trying to build anything? He's like, well, this doesn't exist either. And there, we just say, what? Like, there's no way we can really rationally respond to that. So when you have a premise, a foundation, a grounding of an illusion, then everything that you try to tell people based on that also falls down into the pit of an illusion. So there's no way that you can really tell that a Bible-believing Christian or tell them that you're wrong because you're in an illusion. Another question, why doesn't Christian science result in at least a handful of believers who have completely conquered illness and death, why don't they live longer? Now, if we use this this line of reasoning, I think we have to be very careful because it's basically saying, you guys die like the rest of us. Now, maybe, you know, to unpack that in a loving way, but that's absolutely true. Now, let's stop and take a time out really quick. And there are some, quote-unquote, Christian teachers uh, who will tell us that it's always God's desire, it's always God's will that we are healed. Have you kind of heard that, seeing some things on TV by some teachers? Okay. If that's true, if it's always God's will that we as His followers are physically healed, then why isn't the Apostle Paul still alive today? Think about it. If it's always, if God's will is 
that we are always healed, then it literally means that Christians should never physically die. But we know a fuller reading of God's word is through death and through suffering. I mean, that's the things that God can bring the most beautiful things out of. To allow a person to go through that fiery trial of their faith, whether it's cancer, whether it's persecution for the gospel, whether it's family drama, if a person is able through God's, God's grace to endure that, then he can bring something beautiful from it because he can produce strength of character and he can also give other people hope who look in and say, how in the world did you do that? Going back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the awesome thing about the Lord Jesus, not... Not some Jesus, you know, according to Christian science, who did a good job but wasn't fully God. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, that He is full, full to the brim of grace and truth. That means sometimes that when a person struggles and they fall and they don't do what they should, you know what sometimes can happen? As we feel, how can I go back to God and ask for forgiveness? How can he receive me when I have known to do the right thing, but yet I've done the wrong thing? But the Bible says that he's full of grace. And what Satan wants people to do is stay away from God and to just soak in their own pity and their own, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible. What we should do is go to Christ who tells us the truth. Yes, you're wrong. I'm the one who's right. But because I am full of grace, I have the power not only to forgive you, but to change you. And so that, that's the message that we want to get across to, uh, to these people that are caught in the clutches of this, this false philosophy and, frankly, a cult. And, and constantly searching. And never yes. Actually, I have not thought about that point. Just the concept of a reading room that you're in there reading books upon books upon books trying to find this illusion that explains the illusion. When you find Jesus, it doesn't mean that you'll never have another question, but it means that He is the answer to the true question. Where am I going when I die and how do I live while I'm here? Absolutely. Did I say something different? Oh, okay. I didn't know if I had another slip. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. I was just making sure I didn't throw out some (laughs) accidental heresy. You're like, well, we learned the whole time that Jesus is like Lord and Jeff's like the closing moments. But uh, anyway, anything else strike you in a certain way? Comments, questions? Yes. Yes. If you've not seen the movie The Matrix, um, it is steeped into philosophy. Like, it, you know, and we're not going to get into it tonight, but uh, what, what is real? How do you know you're in a dream? And that is, I think, a large part what they're working through here. But they just go ahead and say, everything's an illusion. But what we find in the Gospels, and especially the Old Testament, is that what we sense and experience here is really real. It's really real. Flesh and blood, true life experience. And I think, once again, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus would come as a human, so demonstrates 
Things that we've had questions about. Who is God? How would God treat a person if he were here? You know, what would God do in relation to the poor? How would God treat religious corruption? Jesus comes onto the scene and blows all of that stuff away. And so we can look at Christ and we can identify with him. Because Hebrews said that he was tempted like we were tempted. But he was not with sin. Jesus was totally without sin. So we can look to him as someone who understands but someone who is able to deliver us. We can look to other friends who love us and love Jesus. They can understand us, but they can't deliver us. But Jesus can both understand because he was one of us. And he can also deliver us because he's the only one who has conquered the power of the grave. I didn't have that many conversations with him, but I think, and I, I didn't even think about it until Lee mentioned that, but that, that's basically what it is. They were just, it's just a constant search. You read and you read and you read, which really is the, that same thread runs through all religions in the world, whether it's trying to find it through a reading room or whether it's trying to find it going to a confessional or any religion, only Christianity. What's that? Yeah, by works. Christianity frees people. Because once you've found Jesus, or rather, once Jesus finds you, because he's the shepherd going looking for the sheep, right? We really don't want to find him in our own sin. But he's the one who sets us free. So then you guys are not dependent upon me to go to God. We gather together as a family to do what the one who has loved us and saved us has told us to do, which is make disciples.